uh, I don't know, it's uh, something about the day, something about the rain that is uh, falling outside. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a fall morning. I've enjoyed worshiping with you, enjoyed singing with you. I'm so grateful that Carolyn and Chrissy are, are with us this morning. It's just, uh, it's, it's been a, a good morning. And before we begin, I just, um, I feel impressed to just, uh, just read a psalm, uh, maybe even two. Uh, so if you have a Bible and want to open it to Psalm 113 for just a minute, uh, and then we'll, we'll get to the message uh, in a minute. Psalm 113 begins a, uh, about a six-psalm section known as the Hallel where the psalmist is giving praise to God from Psalms 113 through, through 118. Uh, and they're uh, just beautiful psalms. Starting in, in Psalm 113, it says, Hallelujah, give praise servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, let the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord is exalted above all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned from on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and He lifts the needy from the garbage pile in order to seat them with nobles, with the nobles of his people. He gives the childless woman a household, making her the joyful mother of children. Hallelujah. Isn't that a beautiful song? About how good God is, about what he does, about giving praise to God, that there is no name higher than the God of the heavens. It is that God that looks down from heaven on his people and not only looks down he stoops down to us he comes down to us and he did that in the form of Jesus he left heaven to come to earth and and to live among us it's a beautiful thing that that God did for us and and, and then he says he he raises the poor from the dust he lifts the needy from the garbage pile in order to to sit them with nobles realistically that's talking about all of us all of us are the needy all of us are in the garbage pile of our sin and our our deceit and yet because of Jesus he he lifts us up and he gives us a place that we don't deserve he sits us with Jesus at that table a place that we could never have gotten to on our own and so that's why he says praise the Lord Praise the God of heaven, for He is good. Amen? I love those psalms. I love those Hillel psalms. I don't know why, but this morning as, as we were singing, I just, I just felt, I guess, impressed is the word to, uh, to open up with, uh, with that. Well, we are in, we're in part six of our, our series that is, uh, that is called 
twisted. And we're, we're close to, to wrapping this thing up. We'll be doing it in the, uh, in the, next, in the next couple of weeks as we move toward the, uh, the Christmas season. Uh, and we've been talking about, uh, about different things. Uh, and so if you've got your Bible, now flip it over to Matthew chapter 4, excuse me, Luke chapter 4, because that's where we'll be in just a few minutes. Luke chapter 4, if you happen to go to Matthew chapter 4, it's the same story, so you're good. It might not be sequenced just right, but it's basically the same story. But go to Luke chapter 4, and we have been talking about the danger of one verse theology, of, of taking one verse and pulling it out of its context and then using it in a way that it was never meant to be used, and it does different things. Uh, it does different things to that verse. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, Romans eight twenty eight. That's a good one. And we know that uh, all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. That verse, a lot of times, is just used as sort of a a quick fix to someone who is suffering, uh, who who's going through something. You know. Uh, family member died in a tragic car accident. Oh, well, Romans 8.28. Uh, you know, you've you got a, a family member dealing with, with cancer. Romans 8.28. You know, you're, you're, you're losing your house to, to foreclosure. We throw out Romans 8.28. But you know what? That, that's not how it was meant to be used. You know, Paul also writes in Romans 12.5 that we are to, to weep with those who, who weep. Sometimes I, I think we, we take that verse and, and we use it to sort of soothe our own feelings because we, we don't know what to say. When, when someone is suffering, it's not our job to just sort of flippantly throw that verse in their face and say, hey, all things work to the, you know, the good of those who love God. It'll be fine, you know. Our job is to love them and to sit with them. In, uh, in our, the, the class that I'm teaching for the teens right now on, on, on practical theology, we talked about this a little bit on, on Wednesday. There is a, a Hebrew practice that is known as sitting shiva. And what it means is that when, when someone loses a loved one, that you go to that person and all you do is you sit. You don't say anything. And you just sit and you just be in their, their presence. What happens a lot of times is that when somebody loses something or something tragic happens, we don't know what to say and we end up, that's a lot of times how we misuse Scripture. I know that I've done it, haven't you? Or we say something that we don't mean to say. Oh, your child died, God must have needed another angel in heaven. That's about the worst thing you could ever say to a, a grieving parent as if, you know, there was a staffing problem in heaven, so God arranged the tragic death of a child to fill that position. Number one, that's bad theology because we don't become angels when we die anyway. But to sit shiva means you just go and you just be there. If they want to talk, that's fine. But it's more about being in their presence. Just almost being that, that, that silent support there, there for them. Our call is to sit with those who suffer, to be with them, to, to weep with them. And so, you know, that's kind of what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, is there is a danger to just isolating one verse. Now then, you can pull one verse out of its context if we're doing it correctly. 
know, if we've read everything that comes before it and everything that follows it, and we kind of have the background of what's going on, then it's okay to, to use some of those verses. But just to strip one out and just throw it out when we don't really understand the context uh, is, is not always the best thing to do. So now then, uh, we've, uh, and we'll review just a little bit right here. Uh, we said from the very beginning of this series, the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. There's a lot of very, very, very good things in it. And we've talked about the, the different ways of understanding and getting the context. The first few weeks we talked about the ABCs, the author, the background, the context, you know, who wrote it, uh, what, where were they writing from, why did they write it, what was the setting that they wrote it in. We also talked about a, another way to grab the context, and that's to think about the W's, the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, you know, why did they write this? Who were they writing it to? Who was it that authored it? Where were they writing from? You know, Paul was writing from prison a lot of times. He was writing to churches in, in, in Philadelphia and uh, in Philippi and places like that. You know, and, and what was it that he was trying to convey to them? And if we'll kind of apply those simple things, it'll help us get a pretty good idea of, of what that, that author is, is trying to say. So now then, uh, week one, here was, our, here was our point from week one, and as I've said from the beginning, I believe this one is the most important one. So let's say this, we've done it every week, let's say this one nice and loud. Number one, context is key. It's absolutely key that we read Scripture, uh, read scripture in its context. And you'll remember we looked at Jeremiah 29, 11, and this is a, a verse that's often pulled out of its context. You know, God will prosper you, He's got an individual plan for you. But then you go back and you read it in its context, you realize he's talking to a people. He's not talking to just an, an individual person. That same week, we also looked at Philippians 13. You know, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me, and there's so much power in that verse. And, and a lot of times, I think we, we lessen its power by using it in a way that it was not meant to be used. You know, when it just becomes fodder for a, a sports team, for their, their logo or for their apparel or whatever it might be, or I can lift this weight or I can beat this challenge because Christ Jesus strengthens me. Well, yes, Christ Jesus does strengthen you, but I'm pretty sure that contest you're trying to win is not what he had in mind, okay? That's not what Paul was thinking about when he wrote those words. You know, Paul had been through a lot. He'd been abused. He'd been beaten. He'd been on the run. People had tried to kill him. He'd been in jail, okay? All for the sake of Christ, all for the sake of that message. And he's saying, you know what? I can be content whether I've got a lot or whether I've got a little because Jesus Christ strengthens me. I can do all things. I can suffer well. I can endure the hardships of my life because it is Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And when we look at it that way, when we see the context, we realize there's a lot more power to that verse. Uh, week two, our point was this, that misquoting Scripture contradicts the message. We look at 1 Corinthians 10.13, and uh, that one's probably the most misquoted verse in the Bible. Um, ever heard, you've, and you've, you've heard it. You may have done it. I know I have. God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that one? We all have. It's not what it says. It says that God will never tempt you beyond what you're able to bear, but in that temptation, He'll provide a, a way of escape. And so, when we misquote Scripture, and a lot of times we don't do it on purpose. I don't think anybody misquotes it on purpose. 
Either that's just what we've always heard, we've never taken the time to look it up, and a lot of times that's what it is, or we just fumble the words and, and, and get them wrong. But when we misquote Scripture, you know, we sort of contradict what it's actually saying. Uh, in week three, <coughs> we said that uh, pulling Scripture out of context can cause us to miss the true meaning of the message. And we went back to Philippians here, Philippians 3, 13, and that's where it talks about um, forgetting what is behind and, and straining toward what is ahead. And, you know, we often, that verse is often misused by thinking, you know, I've got a terrible past, I've got to forget what was in my past, I don't ever need to think about my past again, it's about going forward. But that's not what Paul's talking about. You know, Paul is, is, is you know, Paul had this, all this, this great pedigree when he was a Pharisee. He'd done all these great things, and he's saying, you know, those things don't matter. Paul is stripping away his pride. He's saying, forgetting all those old those old accomplishments about me because that's not what it's about. It's about, it's about Jesus. You know? And so I, I'm forgetting about anything that I accomplished in myself and I'm focusing on Jesus and I'm straining forward trying to, to become more, more, like, more like Christ. Uh, week four, we said that misusing Scripture allows us to justify sinful behavior. And that's where we looked at Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge or you will be judged. How many of us have that on somebody before? I mean, let's just be honest. I have. I have used that on people. Uh, a couple of honest folks in here. Um, there, there's some more. <laughs> um, I've used it. I shared a story with you the, uh, that week, number four, about a, a professor that, that he, he was trying to point some flaws out in my life, some things where I needed to make some changes, and I didn't want to hear what he said, and I quoted that, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge, or you too, or you too will be judged. Okay, and that, man, that sounds like a great one. That sounds like a great one, but that's not what Jesus meant. He's not saying, don't be discerning about things. Don't be discerning about behavior. He's just spent all the, the previous parts of the Sermon on the Mount focusing on our behavior, right? and how we should live, and how we should treat people, and, and the things that we ought to be doing. So he's not saying don't be discerning in your behavior, and don't, don't not discern the behavior of others, because you, know, you need to be aware of, of your surroundings. When he's saying don't judge, or you'll be judged, he's talking in a context of, of being hypocritical. Remember, he is speaking, and the religious leaders are listening to the things that he is saying. They are making it difficult for people to, to come to God, okay? And they are doing things themselves that they are condemning others for. And so that's what Jesus is saying when he makes that statement. Don't, don't condemn others when you're not even taking care of that in, in your own life. Don't judge people for something when you're doing the same thing, okay? And then he goes on and says, what you got to do is you have remove the log and he uses hyperbole there that overspeak you got to remove that log from your eye then you can see to to help someone else to, to get that speck out of, of of their eye you know a lot of times we are hypocritical we got I've got something going on in my life and I don't want it to be exposed so a lot of times what I do is it's easier to deflect my own stuff onto somebody else and I become louder about what you're doing and it takes the, the heat off of me you know what I'm saying? But that makes me 
hypocritical. Um, and I, I hope this doesn't embarrass him, but I, Adam shared with us this morning at our, our men's breakfast that, that he had used his life to, to help someone. Okay? He used, uh, you know, they talked about Matthew 7, 1, and they talked, he, really, he, he, he captured Philippians 3, 13 as he talked about some of his struggles and he talked about things that he had learned and it wasn't about forgetting his past it was about recognizing what Jesus has done Adam asked us an incredible question what has Jesus done for you this week you know and then he began to say well look this is what I was but this is what Jesus brought me to and I was able to talk about this and we talked about not being hypocritical and you know now that Jesus has done this it, you know the, the log is gone and now I can help others you know that's that's what it's about and I really appreciated him sharing that. He had no idea he was making it into the sermon today and helping me preach it, but I'm really glad he did because that fit perfect with what I'm talking about right now. And so I'm grateful for that. And so that's what it means when we, uh, when we misuse Scripture. You know, we can use it wrongly and justify our sinful behavior by saying, hey, don't judge me. I'm going to keep on sinning. You can't judge me. You know, that's how people use it. I'm going to keep living this way. I'm going to keep doing that. You can't judge me. That's not the context of that. It's talking about the religious leaders that are being hypocritical toward people. And then uh, in week five, two weeks ago, we said taking Scripture out of context can lead to, uh, can lead to misinterpretation. And uh, this one had a, a lot of different uses. I won't go into it. But we looked at uh, Matthew uh, 18.20 that says, you know, where two or three are, are gathered in my name, you know, there I am with you. You know, well, hey, two or three people are here. We're agreeing. In the name of Jesus, let's pray. It's all going to happen. God's going to give it to us as if we can manipulate God. Or, hey, we don't, need, we, we, we don't have to go to church. We can stay here. We can stay on the lake. There's two or three of us here. We just Jesus is here among us. That's what that means. No, that's not what that means. In the context of that passage, it's talking about church discipline and how to go to someone and go through the proper channels of someone that is, is got sin in their life. You go to them directly. If they don't listen, you take another person. If they don't listen, you go before the church, you know, and then finally you might have to put them out, but it's all bathed in prayer. It's all done together. That decision was not made by one individual. It's two or three or more. You know what? We don't want to do this, but we agree Jesus you know, he, we've gone through the, the proper channels and Jesus is now with us as we make this decision. That's what that's talking about. And so to take it out of context, it can lead to a, a misinterpretation. So that leads us to our point today. Point uh, uh, for number six, twisted number six. Using Scripture out of context can make it a pretext. And a pretext, you know what a pretext is. I mean, it's... it's uh, giving justification for a, uh, for a course of action um, that is not the real reason. You know, it's a, uh, it's a ruse. It's a, it's a sort of a, a half-truth for things. That's what a, what a pretext is. Just because someone quotes Scripture does not mean that they are a righteous person. Yes or no? Just because someone quotes Scripture and uses Scripture, maybe even knows it, doesn't mean they're a righteous person, and it doesn't mean that they are necessarily using it correctly. Because as we just said, it could mean that they're using it to justify sinful behavior. You know, point number four that we talked about just a few minutes ago. Or it could be that, that some people use a, a half-truth of, of Scripture to manipulate someone, to get them to do something or to stop doing something or, or whatever it might be. 
when it comes to the Bible, we have to be like a, a, a people that Paul encountered in the book of Acts. Those people are called the Bereans. Acts uh, chapter 17, um, he's there with the Bereans, and verse 11 says, Now the Bereans were more were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was, was true. The Bereans didn't just take Paul at his word, but they went and they took their Scriptures and they examined them to see if what Paul was saying was true. It wasn't just, hey, this is Paul, this is a great man of God, what he's saying must be right, so I don't even need to check, I'll just follow that. That's, that's, that's not the way to do it. We have to be like the Bereans. You don't ever need to take the words that I say and think about them in an uncritical way. Okay, You don't need, just because I say something, because I'm the minister, because I'm sort of the mouthpiece of this, this congregation, you don't need to just take everything that I say at face value. Okay, You need to take what I'm saying and then look at it in the Bible and see if what I'm saying matches with the Bible. Okay, Because you know I'm human. Okay? Which means I'm prone to error. Okay? I might look at a text and if I got something on my mind, it's real easy. You ever, you ever had something on your mind, you're aggravated about something, and you go to the Bible, and then all of a sudden it's like, man, it is talking about that. And I'm fixing to lay it on somebody. You know, we can approach Scripture with an agenda, can we not? Okay? That's why, you know, that's why this is that's why church is done in community. Okay, that's why this is done in community so that we can say, hey, wait a minute, I'm not sure that's exactly what that meant. Let's, let's talk about this. or this, Let's look a bit, uh, at that a little bit more. Okay? It, just because I'm the, you know, I've, I've been to school for this and the, whatever you want to call it, the, the resident theologian or whatever, doesn't mean that I'm right. Okay? It means that you as individuals have a responsibility to go and check and see if what I'm saying is right. Not only that, if what I'm saying is not right, I need you to come tell me. But man, please do it nice. Please do it nice. Uh, you show me. Just be nice about it. Okay? But we have to do that with anybody. Okay? Just because a, you, know, you see a minister that is on TV all the time doesn't mean, doesn't mean what they're saying is right. If we're going to be people of the Bible, then we have to be people who use the Bible, who read the Bible, who are familiar with it. Okay? we got to be like the people of Berea that didn't just take Paul. I mean, if Paul came in here and said something to me right now, if he told me to go jump in the lake, I would probably do it without question. The Bereans said, well, now, wait a minute, Paul. It doesn't say that in Scripture that you should go jump in the lake. You know, but, you know, I would, if Paul's one of my heroes, so I would, you know, yeah, okay, Paul, I'm going. I'll go jump in the lake. Whatever you, I'll play in the traffic, whatever you need me to do. We can't just do that, though. We have to examine what Scripture says. Okay, that's, that's, that's part of what doing church together is, uh, is about. We have to search it out for ourselves. And so that, that leads us to our text this morning in, uh, in uh, what book are we in? Luke chapter 4. This is a, it, it's an interesting story. It's the, the temptations uh, that Jesus endured. Now, the, the context of those temptations goes back into the previous chapter, chapter 3. 
Jesus has gone out to John the Baptist. He's asked him um, to, to baptize him. And Jesus is baptized by John after some you know, reluctancy on the part of John. But he finally, he, you know, he gives in, he baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus uh, comes up out of the water, you know, you have the, the two witnesses that sort of affirm Jesus and his authority. Uh, and it's the, uh, it's, it's the Holy Spirit descending and it's God's voice speaking. And, and for a rabbi to be sort of affirmed as a rabbi, it had to have two voices, two witnesses to acknowledge that this person has the authority to begin teaching. And that's what we see happening right here. Jesus is baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, and you have God speaking. And, and, and what he says is this, is, this is my son. This is my beloved son. In, in him I'm well pleased, or in him I have great delight. Well, what comes next is Jesus goes out into the wilderness for, for 40 days, and he fasts during that time. And, you know, when, when, um, when, we're, when we're hungry, when we're tired, you know, when we're angry, those kinds of things, man, that's when we're really weak, right? We're susceptible to things. It's easier to give in to temptations during those times. And, and Satan knew this, and so he launched this attack when Jesus would have been at a, a weak point physically. Okay, because remember, he had a human body that was, was like ours. It was subject to the, the same things that our bodies are subject to. And so Satan shows up there after he has uh, been out in the wilderness. And uh, Luke says that he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God. Now he is, he is playing on what God has just said at the baptism. This is my son. Satan is saying, if you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. And he begins to play on the hunger of Jesus. How tempting that must have been. You know, to, uh, Jesus had the power to turn those stones to bread. To not only do that, but to put Satan in his place. Okay, I'll show you. You know, and because when we're challenged, we want to step up to a challenge, don't we? No, yes, yeah, we want to step up to a challenge. Don't challenge me on something. Okay, I mean, there was a challenge going on in the office a few minutes ago about a football game. Okay, we just, I mean, somebody challenges us, we're going to step up. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. Satan says, tell those stones to turn, if you're the son of God. What he's really implying is, you might not be the son of God. And if you want to prove that you're the son of God, tell those stones to become bread. And Jesus says that man doesn't live on bread alone okay some versions say but every word that comes from the mouth of God depending on, on what translation that you're reading Satan changes up his tactic then shows him just kind of in a flash shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says if you will worship me I'll give you all this authority I'll give you power and dominion over all of these kingdoms if you'll just you know you'll worship me you can have it, it all. And he's appealing <clears throat> to sort of the, maybe the, uh, the uh, nationalistic part of Jesus, the pride of his people. Because remember, the Jews are oppressed by Rome. 
had he bowed down, had he worshipped Satan, he could have ended that oppression. He could have driven Rome out. He could have ended the abuse of, of, of the Herods. But instead, he says, worship the Lord your God and, and, and serve Him only. And then Satan changes tactics one more time, and that's where we find our text and our, our verse that's taken out of context. And it's, uh, let's, let's just start in verse 9. It says, So he took him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, here it is, the, here's that phrase again, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Again, he's challenging Jesus to prove himself. Prove that you're the Son of God. Just because God says it, I want you to prove it. Prove that you are God's son. As a matter of fact, you can prove it by doing this. Throw yourself off this, this, this very high spot. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What we have to remember is that Satan knows Scripture too. Everybody with me? Let's, uh, th let's think about that. Let's make sure we've all acknowledged that. Satan knows Scripture. Okay? Satan knows Scripture and he quotes Scripture. Okay? Satan uses half-truth. That's what he did in the, in the Garden of Eden. With, with Adam and Eve, he used a half-truth and sort of led them into this deception that caused them to step out from under the umbrella of God's authority and take, take that fruit, okay? He is quoting Scripture to Jesus, okay? Which means he's not above, if he's not above doing that to Jesus, he's not above doing something like that for us, you know what I'm saying? He misquotes Scripture, or he quotes Scripture to Jesus. He's tempting Jesus by saying, hey, look, you know, you want to prove to everybody you're the Messiah? Go ahead and do this. Go ahead and jump off the temple. Why? Because the angels will catch you. And then he quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12. He uses this as, as a reference that the angels will protect him. Go ahead and put it up right here. This is Satan on Psalm 91, 12. For he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So, hey, go ahead and jump. Because that's kind of what that's, that's what that's talking about. But here's the problem. When Satan quotes that psalm, he leaves out a line. Look at it, how it's actually written. For he will command his angels concerning you, now then see that underlined part? To guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan purposely omits the part about they will guard you in, in all your ways. The point of this temptation is that Satan is trying to get Jesus to step away from God's will and do Jesus' will. And so when we read that, we read what Satan's doing, we see, as we've said every week, it's out of context. He's trying to, to get Jesus to step away from 
the will of God. And as I've been preaching through this series, you know, I've kind of talked about it on Facebook a little bit, had a lot of feedback about it. And somebody, somebody sent me this uh, a, a few weeks ago. Satan, uh, using selective Bible quotations and misinterpret, misinterpreting long before it was cool, Luke chapter 4. Uh, and then there's our verse in uh, 1, through, 1 through 13. But that's what he does. He misquotes, he misinterprets Scripture. God's will, God's will is that Jesus is going to have to die on the cross. His will is that he is going to have to die for our sin. To, to, to break the curse, to defeat death. Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to take a shortcut by showing off his power in a, in a great and miraculous way. Psalm 91, you know, this is a, a, a prediction that God would guide Jesus in, in all his ways because Jesus always lived to do the will of the Father even when he was tempted. The, they were the, the, it was, it was a, 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 a promise of, I will help you to do my will, to do the will of the Father. Yet Satan tempts him by taking this verse out of its context and, and, and giving it in a way that it, it, mean, it means something different than from what was originally intended. If Satan can misquote Scripture, imagine what people can do with Scripture. You know, We do all kinds of things with it, and that's why we're, we have this passage. But, or, or that's why we have this series. But when we look at this, we realize, you know, he's saying, look, if you're the Son of God, go and throw yourself down from here. Jesus, Jesus does not need to prove who he was to Satan. He did not need to prove who he was to Satan, and he refused to test God. Instead, he chose to believe in the promises of God, and he believed that he would prove who he was by the life that he lived. He would prove who he was by doing the will of the Father, and doing the will of the Father means coming and freeing the captives from their sin, restoring sight to the blind, and ultimately going to a cross for all of mankind. That's how he would prove that he is the Son of God. You see, had Jesus done any of these things, had he turned the stones to bread, had he bowed down to, to Satan, had he thrown himself off that temple, there would be no hope for us. Zero. None whatsoever. Jesus was able to withstand that temptation. And a lot of times, you know what, we think, yeah, Jesus was able to withstand it. But man, I'm tempted all the time and I can't withstand it. That was, that was Jesus. That's true, it was Jesus. But you know what we notice from this passage? is that Jesus doesn't use any divine power to overcome and withstand these temptations. As a matter of fact, He uses things that are available to us. And I think maybe that's, that's part of the point of this story. 
to show that when we are tempted, we have these same things that Jesus used at our disposal. We have every single spiritual resource. He relied on, on prayer. He relied on the love of His Father. He relied on the, the Holy Spirit, the Word. You see, and we have all of those things as well. When we're tempted, we have prayer. We have the love of a Father who is willing to give His Son to die for us. That no matter what we do, He's not going to, to hate us. He's always going to love us. He may not be uh, happy with what we're doing. He might be disappointed in some choices we're making. But we will always have the love of our Father. We have the Holy Spirit, if we've given our lives to Jesus, who, who comes and, and, and lives inside us, who is that counselor and that, that, that comforter, that, that guide, kind of that, that compass that helps us, that can manifest those fruits within us to help us overcome a temptation. We have the Word of God. And not only that, we have Jesus. So we actually have more at our disposal than what He had. And we have this example of looking back to see how Jesus overcame these incredible temptations. You see, as the Son of God, I mean, He had the power to do these things. But as the humble Son of Man, He was only going to do the will of His Father. And the will of His Father is ultimately to save mankind from, from their sins. And so Jesus responds to Satan. And he says, it says, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. And it says, after that, the devil had finished every temptation. He departed until a more opportune time. That more opportune time is going to come in the form of the betrayal of Judas. Now then, the, uh, the Matthew version of, of this text says that when, when Satan left him, the angels did come and attend to Jesus. They came and they, they, they served him. We have every spiritual resource available to us. Okay, when we're tempted... We've got it. We can call out to God. Okay, not only that, we've already seen from week two of this series that Paul tells us that God will provide a way out. We don't have to be tempted. Now, it's not wrong to be tempted. Okay, and a lot of people, they, they I don't think they understand that. They think... Well, I was tempted. I've blown it. I was tempted. You know what? We're all tempted. Okay? We're all tempted. Every one of us is tempted. It's when we, we take the step, the next step, when we give in to the, the temptation. You know, the book of James talks about that. You know, um, it says that, you know, that there it is, and, you know, we're, we're tempted by it. We're enticed by it. And then when we, when we kind of bite the hook, we're lured away, we're dragged away into that, that sin. 
Okay? The thing is, is we don't have to give in to a temptation. And then it's not easy. Especially if we're trying to battle that temptation on our own. Okay? We have to tap into the resources that are there. We have to tap into prayer. We have to remind ourselves that God loves us more. God loves us more and has paid more for us than this temporary carnal pleasure that we're seeking after. We are worth more than that to God. Okay? The, 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 the temporary will not last. And you know what happens a lot of times when we give in to those, those temporary temptations? How do you feel when it's over? You feel good? Because I usually don't. A lot of times I feel more lousy than I did before. You know what I'm talking about? But man, when you give that over to God, it does feel good because you've handled it the right way. I've taken it before God. I've prayed to God. I've cried out. He's, I've felt the love that He has for me. The Holy Spirit has manifested self-control in my life. And I have Jesus as an example who I'm straining after. You know, and it, it encourages us. We can, we can overcome our temptations. You know, when we're tempted, we have to rely on God and His Word. And that's what, what Jesus did. And so we see, and here's our, our point again for the morning, using Scripture out of context makes it a pretext. We have to guard against doing that. We want to use Scripture always in the way that, that it was intended to be used. Because even Satan, as we see, Satan knows Scripture. And if Satan knows Scripture, we had better know Scripture as well. Is that right? Is everybody with me? All of us battle temptations all the time. Every single day, there's a temptation in front of us. No matter what it is, no matter how big or how small. Some of them are little. Okay? 10 o'clock at night. Every night, I'm tempted. Because I know, I know that all I have to do is go downstairs and there's a, a giant box of cereal sitting on top of the refrigerator. What did y'all think I was going to say? You should have seen your faces. You were like leaning in. But we're tempted all the time in every way. You know what Jesus was tempted to? As we've just seen, in fact, the Hebrew writer talks about him being tempted and, and suffering. When you undergo a temptation, it's difficult because you're suffering because that's something you think you need and you're having to suffer through that. That's what Jesus is talking about or the writer's talking about. But there's a better way, and that's God's way. And it's to turn our temptations over to Him and to trust Him to lead us out of those temptations. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why this story is here. Not only to remind us that Jesus overcame those temptations for us and this is why he was able to go on and go to the cross and be the, the, the sinless 
spotless sacrifice, the Lamb of God, but also to show us that, look, it doesn't, Jesus didn't uh, use his divine power to overcome them. He relied on the same things that are available to us. Okay, and if we will do that, if we'll put into to action the way that Jesus overcame his temptations, we can do the same thing. Okay, so whatever it is, if you've got a struggle, if you've got a temptation, don't fight it yourself because you're going to lose. Turn it over to God. Let him bring you out of it. Let him release you from it. Ask to have that temptation removed. Now then, that may not happen. It might be like one of those thorns that constantly torments you. And in that case, you need to remember then that, you know, that's, you need to rely more on God. Turn more to God. When I'm tempted, I turn to God. When I want to give in, I turn to God. I pray. I ask Him to help me. I ask Him to sustain me. I ask the Holy Spirit to manifest self-control or love or peace, joy, or patience, or whatever it might be that I need to overcome whatever it is I'm feeling. And let him do that. But don't, you know, if you, and if you do blow it, it's not the end of the world. God ain't going to just zap us right there in that minute. His forgiveness is available. He wants us all to come to repentance. He wants us all to turn back to him. Okay, God paid too big a price for you. You are worth it, and he wants you. Come back to God. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. You do that by confessing his name. Be baptized into his name. Come into the kingdom. If you're hurting, if you've got a struggle, if you have a temptation, whatever it is, don't take it home. Don't take it out of here. If you want to be united with Jesus today, you can do that. If we can help you, if we can pray for you, why don't you come while we stand together and sing?